Well, honey, I remember the library vividly because during World War II, we used to go down taking the streetcar to downtown Washington, D.C. to go to the only library in the area. It's still there. I remember just being huge when I was a little girl. Well, now libraries are so common. In those days, you'd have one library for a city, for a town. That was all. Now, my golly, we have libraries all over the place. Hi, my name is Larry Terry, and I'm the executive director of the Cooper Center. I'd like to welcome you to another episode of our second season of Intersections in Public Service. I'm really excited to present this episode to you. As you heard earlier, this is a story about the public service of libraries. We're covering the history of libraries and their expansion into Virginia, as well as the evolving services they provide. This topic is increasingly important given that as the needs and composition of our communities change, in many ways our library systems are on the front lines of providing innovative ways to connect and empower anyone who walks in their doors. You'll hear from Nancy Webster, a retired elementary school teacher, and Betsy Fowler, a public servant, librarian, and director of the Williamsburg Regional Library. Hi, this is B. Webster. So the special guest you heard at the beginning of the podcast is none other than my grandma. My grandma is an avid book lover and taught kindergarten through second grade for over 40 years. A big part of her job was teaching children how to read and how to love books like she does. I thought she could provide insight into the importance of books and how the role of libraries has changed from when she first started going. Every time my grandma came to visit me growing up, she would come to school and read a story to my class. Now in our weekly emails, we send each other book recommendations. I wanted to ask her about her experience with libraries and how they've changed since she was a child. I was also lucky enough to speak with Betsy Fowler, who also has a long-standing relationship with libraries. I'm Betsy Fowler. I am the director of the Williamsburg Regional Library which serves the city of Williamsburg, James City County, and serves residents of York County. I have been a librarian for 41 years. I started in public libraries by accident, by driving a bookmobile right out of college and fell in love with them and went back to get a library science degree. It was very interesting. It was, we served an area that had 70 miles between points and the counties that we were serving. And it was the old days where they didn't require chauffeur's license. And I bravely asserted that I could drive this large vehicle, which was questionable. Um, And the next thing I knew, we were hurtling through all these country roads loaded to the gills with books. And this is before there were branch libraries in every county. So people would be lined up waiting for the bookmobile to show up. It was hard work and it was fun and it was exhausting. Now, bookmobiles are a great modern way to get books to rural areas, but before there were bookmobiles, what were libraries like? How did they start? Let's go back to the beginning. Libraries date back to the 7th century BCE when Assyrian ruler Ashurbanipal, and nowadays Iraq, had a royal collection of around 30,000 tablets ordered by topic, ranging from religious and mythical texts to legal documents. Many other civilizations had libraries too. In Egypt, there was a Library of Alexandria with 700,000 documents that served people in Egypt, India, Greece, and Persia. There were also libraries in the Mayan and Aztec empires, China, Baghdad, Rome, and Athens. 
These libraries gave people the tools to better their lives by providing agricultural knowledge and information about many other things. Now flash forward to the Enlightenment era in Europe, around the 1700s, when literacy rates in non-religious texts were on the rise. People began to learn and come to their own conclusions about the world rather than relying on the Catholic Church for information. This was a time without libraries, so people normally went to literary salons to debate and talk about literature, art, and politics. Literary salons are named for the room they typically took place in, the host library. But unlike libraries, the focus was not literacy or books, it was mostly a gossip session. The upper class mostly frequented literary salons. Literary salons were also popular in the United States after the Revolutionary War, when the United States became an independent nation. After literary salons, subscription libraries became all the rage because people wanted access to books they didn't have or couldn't afford on their own. This was where library owners, typically wealthy men, opened their private libraries to others who paid them membership fees for access. In 1790, Benjamin Franklin founded the first public library in Philadelphia. However, the journey of libraries in the South was not quite the same. They didn't have the tradition that you had up north, going all the way back to Ben Franklin, where they set up public libraries in almost every community in states like Massachusetts and Connecticut, which really have a long history of library services. There weren't a lot of public libraries in Virginia up through the 1960s. A lot of counties in, had no history of public library services. Some of the older communities, if you're talking Alexandria, um, Williamsburg, maybe Charlottesville, I don't know, just the city of Fredericksburg, had small lending libraries that probably women's groups had set up, some of them dating back to the 20s. The Library of Virginia in the 60s were able to convince the General Assembly to commit funding towards establishing public libraries. Local jurisdictions could apply for grants to set up regional library systems, which they did in a lot of areas, um, like the library I worked in, it served Fredericksburg, Stafford, Spotsylvania, and Westmoreland counties. Um, and I think it was only maybe in the last 10 years that all the jurisdictions in Virginia got public library systems. These newer libraries are open to everyone in the public, but historically these regional libraries were not accessible to everyone. During segregation, there were private reading rooms for Black patrons the only area they would be allowed in. Some libraries would close one day a week to white patrons and stay open for the black community to keep everyone, quote, separate but equal. And it actually was so bad in Virginia. Um, and of course, there were issues with discrimination, I think in the Williamsburg Library, like probably all the libraries in Virginia in the South at the time, people of color were not welcome to use the library originally. In 1964, the tides changed. The 1964 Civil Rights Act outlawed public discrimination, which included all public libraries. This was further supported by the Voting Rights Act of 1965, giving African Americans full enfranchisement and access to public facilities. Apart from who was allowed to participate in libraries, the technology itself has also changed. Well, I can go back 40-some years. <laughs> I've seen, I was there when it was the card catalog and each book had a card and you signed your name on it and you filed it in little alphabetical or Dewey order behind the date and you put a plastic petticoat on it if somebody asked to reserve the book. So 
I've seen it completely transition to technology. And of course, it's the technology is overall wonderful. It has really revolutionized as it has with everything else, the delivery of services and how we're able to offer services and what we're able to do quickly and efficiently to meet demands. As a college student at UVA, I use libraries every day with tons of resources. I've taken this high level of technology for granted, so I decided to take a tour of UVA's Clemens Library to see it with new eyes. It's really bright down here. There's a ton of windows and it's very modern. I am in a private room and the walls are made of glass so I can see everybody in the library. There's a lot of private rooms because people will have meetings in them or they'll work on their group projects or they'll talk with their friends as they study. So I just walked down two flights of stairs to Clem 2, which is the second floor of Clemens Library. It has four floors. So when you first walk in, you're on the fourth floor, Clem 4, and you can talk and be as loud as you want there. And then the floor below that is the media center where all the computer and media supplies are. And then where I am is Clem 2, where you can whisper and have slight conversations with your friends. UVA offers private rooms and open spaces for students to study and socialize. But UVA also uses Clem to provide tech services to students. On Clem 3, there's a computer lab, a recording studio, and tools students can rent. The microphone I'm using right now is rented. The services libraries provide have grown as technology has expanded. Instead of focusing on providing books to the community, they also now teach digital literacy. Digital literacy is the ability to use technology to convey information. For example, many libraries provide 3D printing, ebooks, and computer labs. These new services have also fundamentally altered the jobs library employees carry out. And a lot of times when they need help navigating technology, or access to technology, they're coming to the reference desk. The nature of the job has changed. And I think that libraries in some ways are still the same and in other ways are completely different. Still the same in terms of being the place where people come to think and read and talk, collaborate, learn, but completely different in the vehicles for the services that we're offering on the modes of service. Betsy's Williamsburg Regional Library has fully embraced these new modes of service. We started having these STEAM Saturdays where we would have like somebody from the Virginia Living Museum or the Virginia Science Museum would come and there would be a theme and they would do a big performance for children and families. And then we would have hands-on activities that the families could do in the library that involved um, whatever this theme was. Then we saw how successful that was, and we had hundreds of families coming, and we saw how much people liked this intergenerational hands-on learning, and we thought, wow, it would be really great if the library could be this way every single day. And we had about a 7,000 square foot children's room, and we just radically reinvented it to be a hybrid children's museum, children's library. It has just been explosive in terms of the community response. We had 14,000 people the first month and visited and just people love it. And then it really has worked in that they check out books while they're there. So it's the first time I have actually seen shelves be completely empty. I really more and more believe that as we move forward, we've got to embrace um, these different learning experiences and activities and really work to be relevant to people. And this has been a great way to make headway with our children's areas. 
Libraries are finding new ways to engage and cater to younger audiences, which didn't previously exist. This interactive museum is a way to raise a new generation of readers and get children excited about reading. On top of children's museums, Betsy's library kept their resources accessible during the pandemic. We had mobile Wi-Fi hotspots during the pandemic where the bookmobile or the library vans went and parked in places that didn't have the Wi-Fi broadband access and provided the access via hotspots on the vehicles for a certain number of hours at scheduled times. We also are setting up community Wi-Fi points um, in neighborhoods where there's 24-7 high-speed Wi-Fi access. And of course, we're checking out the hotspots for people to use in their homes for a week at a time. So more and more, we're conscious of the fact that we have to try harder. We have to reach out just not to the people that come to the buildings or traditionally use the library, but to everybody in our community. In addition to technology and literary support, libraries also tried to provide community support during the pandemic. And, you know, this has been a hard time. People have been lonely. People have been frightened and people have been isolated. There was a lot of frustration and depression. The staff here was amazing. They also staffed the vaccination clinic when it opened. The libraries did, librarians did and checked in everyone to get their COVID vaccinations in the community. And just recently, we were handing out thousands of test kits for the Virginia Health Department until their distribution dried up a couple weeks ago, but we were just really intent on making a difference. We got all the 3D printers up and running right away in March to make protective equipment, face shields for the medical community locally before they could get um, the inventory they needed. We had the 3D printers running around the clock. We upped a lot of our digital collections, the money we were putting into them so that people would have access all sorts of materials online if they could not come to the buildings. We did a lot of virtual programming, virtual children's programming. So I think we really saw it as an opportunity to say, we're here for our community and we want to make a difference and we want to do things that are meaningful during a time when we're needed. So it was a good opportunity in some ways for the library to show that we could we could be an important part of the community during a crisis. I'm always conscious of the fact that we have to continue to keep our fingers on the pulse of what our community needs and what we need to do to be relevant and meaningful to our community if we want to continue to be successful. So we have to be pretty nimble and evolve. But right now I'm looking out in the parking lot and it's full and people are coming in and out of the building in droves, and that's pretty much what I see every day. We have probably close to 400,000 visits at the Williamsburg Library building a year, which is a healthy number for a population this size. You realize very rapidly when you come to work at a public service desk at a library that you can make a difference, that people are hungry for connection. I think, to me, public service is just that desire to try to make a difference and to help people and to treat everyone with the same degree of respect, regardless of if it's a two-year-old standing there or a successful business person, that everybody is deserving of a better life 
and a chance to access a better life and have the tools to do it and that we can be the conduits. And it's enormously moving and satisfying. Libraries keep their fingers on the pulse of their communities by providing services for all groups of individuals. I think that the library I was in, the regional library serving Fredericksburg, was a Library of Congress outlet for, I forget what the collection was called, but it was designed for people who had visual difficulties to be able to get equipment at home and use the specifically designed audio tapes to play on the equipment. And we, of course, have large print collections. We do, like most libraries, we actually do homebound delivery. So if a doctor notes that you're unable to drive, we will come to your house every two weeks and bring you materials. We go to assisted living and nursing homes. We go to after-school programs. We have programs, sensory story times and um, reading to dogs um, and all sorts of things to encourage children who may be on the autism spectrum. So we have had a program called the Getaway Cafe, which is geared to people with memory loss and their partners so that they can come and experience a program with other people. I called it outreach, and that's traditionally what it's been called in libraries. But I think it's really about reaching out in a more comprehensive way to try to capture segments of the population that traditionally may have been overlooked. One area I'm aware of is we're really stepping up our programming in the juvenile detention center where there's a big appetite for it. It makes a real difference. You can help transform lives if you can reach out to people when they're really in need. I know we have one book group we have for people with special needs who are adults. Um, but just pockets of people who traditionally may not have been actively courted um, or invited into the library specifically by offering targeted programming and collections. Libraries now engage all groups of people that historically they didn't have services for. These new programs increase the community's appreciation of libraries. People overwhelmingly support libraries, but it's like a lot of things. You know, you believe in something and you support it, but taking the next step to actively advocating for it is a big step that most people don't usually take. Um, and it usually has to be someone kind of spurring them on to do that, a community activist or a particular controversial issue that makes people rise up. You have to actively advocate with um, elected officials and I think other people who are influential to say this is an important part of our community. This, the role the library plays is one that no other institution is playing. So I think that advocacy is really important. We need to keep advocating for libraries because they provide so many free services that people might not have access to otherwise. Free Wi-Fi, computer labs, books, and most of all, a community. You know, I hear that from libraries around the country. I read that some of them are facing funding challenges. There's certainly a lot of beautiful new libraries being built nationally, being built in the state of Virginia. So certainly jurisdictions are investing in libraries still. Our jurisdictions continue to be supportive. We also have a foundation that fundraises for the library and the community's been very generous because they believe in it. So it hasn't been an issue here 
like I said, it just kind of depends on the state and the community, how they're faring in terms of resources. If you're a library in a small town or county where the population has been decreasing and where livelihoods are not good, you know, it's a lot more competitive for local dollars. They just don't have those kinds of resources. Communities receive better library services when libraries are well-funded. Local officials have to advocate for this funding, and the community must make sure they vote for politicians that recognize the accessibility libraries bring to all their constituents. Initially, libraries were not a public service in the United States. They were exclusive literary salons for wealthy, literate white men. Now they're open to everyone of any walk of life. Libraries are an essential part of the community that cannot be overlooked. Not only do they provide free access to information, they also are one of the few public places where people can occupy space without spending money. They make information accessible, create community, and most of all, center equity. On an individual level, books can connect people with each other. For me personally, libraries and books have connected me to my grandma. My books are important to me, important in my life. It's sort of a legacy for the generations. I'm not throwing my books out, and I'm not giving them away. I'm hoping that you all will use them with your kids the way I did. Get them into a book. Cuddle up on a couch. Put your arm around them and read a good book together. Boy, there's nothing better. See what you can do to support your local library. Most appreciate donations and volunteer hours. For more information, check out the American Library Association. Thanks again to our guest, Betsy Fowler. And thank you, Grandma, for letting me interview you. If you like this episode, stay tuned and check out our other episodes. For more public service-related content, follow the Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Bea Webster, and thanks so much for listening to this episode of Intersections in Public Service. Have a good one. For more in-depth interviews, check out Charlottesville Soundboard, a podcast about news, equity, and arts in the Charlottesville community. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Find them on Facebook at WTJU Soundboard and Twitter at CVL Soundboard. Subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud.